It seems like recently we've had a a lot of very high-profile people die. Every time I'm listening to the news, we hear a word again. Just yesterday we had the funeral for Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. I mean, here is this man who looked like he was in great health, still had a brilliant mind, living life fully and living well. And one night he goes to bed and he doesn't wake up. He was 79 years old, a good man. All of a sudden, it was just a few weeks before that we heard about Glenn Fry. I mean, Glenn Fry was one of the founders of the Eagles, right along with Don Henley. I remember the Eagles in the 70s. Growing up, I loved their songs. Just last fall, I, I went to a concert with the Eagles to go see them with a group of friends here in Oklahoma City. And oh my goodness, one of the comments we were all making after the concert was, man, they all still look great. They sound wonderful. They had energy. I mean, it was a great concert. It turned out that Glenn had rheumatoid arthritis and the medicine he was taking made him more susceptible to infection and he developed pneumonia and some of the complications near the end of this year and suddenly a few weeks later in the beginning of this year, he was dead. 67 years old. Now I just got to tell you, when I was in my 20s, If I had talked about people dying when they were 67 and 79, I would have said they'd lived a good life. (laughs) But now, now what I want to say is they were cut down in their prime. (laughs) They were cheated. It really set me back and made me think when I looked at both of these men. And then this past week, Ingrid Williams, here the wife of one of our coaches, Monty Williams, with a thunder, 44 years old in a car crash, a mother, wife, and in a moment, she was gone, 44. And you started looking at 44, 67, 79, and all I could think about was, It seems like everywhere I'm turning right now, I'm being reminded of my mortality. Because the truth is, we're all going to die. A couple of weeks ago, we had a wonderful service here in this sanctuary, Ash Wednesday. You and I got together and what a powerful service. Every year it grows. I mean, we had hundreds of people in here on Ash Wednesday night. We had them at our other campuses as well. And as a meaningful service, Phil brought us a wonderful sermon. There was beautiful music. We come to the end. And what they do is they take the palm branches that were used on Palm Sunday the year before. They are burned. You take the ashes. They're mixed with some oil. And that's what creates this paste, if you will, And all the ministers have this in a little bowl. And then we take our thumbs and we take the ashes and we make a cross on your forehead. And this year we said things like, remember the grace of God for your life. Remember God's love for you now and forever. But I got to tell you, historically on Ash Wednesday, 
Whenever people come and receive the imposition of ashes, what has been said is earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, you're going to die. Now we kind of decided that wasn't going to be the most uplifting thing you could hear from us when you come. And we thought, I bet we're not going to build a big crowd on that year after year. But actually, that's what Lent is supposed to be about. Lent is supposed to be about the time when you reflect on your mortality. Earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Fascinating thing is, that line isn't in the Bible. The closest you can get to it is this Genesis 3, 19, where it says, God says to Adam, from dust you have come and to dust you will return. But the idea of earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, that's in the common book of prayer. The Anglican book for worship, what can be used on funerals as well as Ash Wednesday. And it's what is to be said so that as we go into the season of Lent to think about Jesus' suffering and death, we reflect on our own mortality. But the truth of the matter is, you and I don't like to talk about dying. We don't like to talk about our death or the death of those that we love. Sometimes we forget that life is a terminal experience. But we don't want to talk about it. In our scripture lesson this morning, we were reading about this night of the Last Supper. I told you last week, we're going to spend the entire season of Lent in Mark 14. We picked up a couple of verses from Mark last week where Jesus said, And the sheep and the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. It was a prophecy from Zechariah in the Old Testament. And it's the prophecy about a Messiah that says the Messiah will be killed and everyone will flee. And so Jesus is saying, the the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep will be scattered. Tonight I'm going to be betrayed. And Peter is saying, I'll never let that happen to you. He doesn't want to talk about it. Doesn't want to talk about it. To understand this passage, you need to go back to Mark 8 and go back to the 31st verse. But this is where Jesus had been with His disciples and He had said to them, Who do men say that I am? And they said, Well, some say you're Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. And Peter spoke up and said, You're the Christ. And then in the 31st verse, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And I like that Mark adds this in. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Mark was saying, Jesus was clear. He wanted to talk about his suffering and dying. And Peter didn't want to talk about it. How often you and I don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about our dying, the dying of our loved ones. No, we forget that life is a terminal experience. And we'd rather ignore it. 
This morning, I want to continue on with this sermon series, Running in the Wrong Direction. What we said we were going to do during the season of Lent is we were going to try to confront so many of these different issues in our lives that we want to run from. Things that make us afraid, those things that we fear, the things that we want to ignore. And the way that we ignore them and get away from them is we start running and what happens is we get lost And we said that if you and I could find the courage this Lent to get honest and to confront these issues of our life, we'll find ourselves moving to God, confronting the important issues and finding a sense of peace, finding our way. One of those things that I believe we run from is the discussion of death. Three things that I want to say about it this morning. First of all, When we decide to ignore the reality of death, we ensure that when we come to one of the most important times in our lives, we will be unprepared. When we choose to ignore the reality of death, we ensure that when we come to one of the most important times in our lives and the lives of our loved ones, we will be unprepared. You know, I think of people like Justice Scalia, Ingrid Williams. They died in a moment. When you have some loved one who dies in a moment, and if you've never thought about heaven, life after death, what do you believe about life after death? What do you believe about the mystery If you've never wrestled with these issues, in that kind of a crisis moment, you find yourself in a real crisis because you don't have anything to hang on to. You don't know what to do. I go and sit with families all the time in these kinds of moments. And I can tell you, I can see when someone has not thought about what do they believe about life after death, what do they believe in their promise of eternal life. If you hadn't thought about it, Well, then you're running afraid. The time to develop your theology about life after death is not in the midst of a crisis. It's beforehand. But we don't like to talk about it. However, most people don't die suddenly like that anymore. Most of us will die over an extended period of time. Some sort of illness, sickness, where we're having to go to the doctors, we're going to be in the hospital in and out. And doctors will be asking us, do you want this treatment? Do you want that treatment? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And we have to start making decisions. You have to do it with your parents, with a sibling, with your own life. What's important to you? If you do this, what do you lose? Do you do that? If you've not thought about life after death and developed your understanding of that, when you're confronted in that kind of emotion, it's amazing how we start running. i got to do this and this and this. We're so afraid to talk about death. I had a friend of mine whose wife had breast cancer. It was um, very severe. The prognosis was not good. He wanted to talk about it with his kids. 
He brought up about how bad it was and what they would have to do. And the kids spoke up and said, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk. We're just going to pray and believe Jesus is going to heal her. You just got to be positive. He called me and said, I want to talk about it. If we don't ever take the time to think and to prepare, then you're not ready to make decisions when that moment comes for a member of your family or for yourself. Part of the reason this has all happened is because of the incredible advancements we've made in medicine. Now, I've been reading a fascinating book entitled Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. It's by Antul Gawande. His family was from India. He was raised here in the United States. He's a surgeon. It is a book I highly recommend. But he gets to talking in his book about how, you know, in Jesus' day, the average age of life expectancy was 28. Over the next 1,900 years, it would only grow to 50 was life expectancy. And finally, by 1940, it had grown to about 60 But then everything changed in the 1940s. In 1942, medicine went through a huge change because we began to administer penicillin. Alexander Fleming had discovered it several years before. It was finally agreed it could be used now and it began to be dispersed. And all these common diseases that were killing us were suddenly no big deal. And life expectancy began to skyrocket. I mean, today, if you make it into your 60s fairly healthy, your life expectancy is your mid-80s. How many of us know people living well into their 90s? I have friends in their hundreds. Life expectancy has just skyrocketed. And the other reason is because of hospitals. Before 1940s, there was real no difference between staying at home and going to a hospital. There really wasn't any difference in the healing. But in the middle 1940s, now that we had penicillin and other drugs were coming along, the government saw there could be a difference, and so they passed a bill to inspire and incentivize making hospitals. And over the next 20 years, we built 9,000 hospitals across the United States. That's almost 200 per state. And suddenly you're going to the hospital. And man, they got new medications and new treatments and new surgeries. They're doing amazing things. I was talking to my son Paul this last week. You know, Paul is a vascular surgeon. He is in his last year of his fellowship at Scott and White and Temple. And he was telling me how a lady had been in a car accident and it had split her aorta. I mean, literally broken it in two. Now, when your aorta gets cut in two, life expectancy is very short. But the tissue around this, it's amazing, had managed to hold together and the aorta was still lined up and close to each other and the tissue was holding it in place. And this lady's by such a fine, thin line was okay for a moment. I mean, she was alive. She had multiple injuries, but they rushed her to the hospital. He was the surgeon on call. He went in. He began doing surgery, put in a stent and some other things. And he said, Dad, two days later, she was fine. She's fine. She's going home. And I said, wow. I mean, your aorta is split. You're going to die. 
but we can get you to the hospital and you get to go home. Well, that's all wonderful. But what's happened is you and I start to believe there's always a pill. There's always a treatment. There's always a surgery that's going to make us okay. That somehow we're going to keep on living because we can go to the doctor and we're going to go to the hospital. And I thought, this is so amazing that this young lady gets a new lease on life But even though Paul saved her life, she's going to die. One day, from something, she will die. Because life is a terminal experience. And we get so used to being saved by all these incredible medicines and procedures and surgeries that we just don't think it's going to happen to us. We don't want to talk about it. You know, there's so many wonderful books to read and things to think about. I strongly encourage you to read the book, Being Mortal, by Ann Dulgawande, as I was just telling you. As a surgeon, he deals with these kinds of issues. And then there's the book, um, Proof of Heaven, Eben Alexander, a neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience. There's the book, Final Gifts, by Maggie Callahan. It's a book written by hospice nurses and all about their experiences of working with the dying. Or the great book from years ago now, Tuesdays with Maury. Mitch Album, the famous sports writer, talking with his professor who had ALS, and he walked with him all the way to his death. Well, there's so many good books to read. And then you talk, and you pray, and you learn to start thinking about the mystery of God's grace that confronts death and life after death. To ignore the reality of death is to ensure that when you come to one of the most important times in your life or the life of a loved one, you will be unprepared. But you don't have to be. Secondly, To embrace the reality of death enables us to live fully in the present moment. It really is amazing. The more that you and I are willing to get honest and confront death, it tends to enable us to live more fully in the moment. I read Tuesdays with Maurice years ago, and there's one line I have always remembered out of the book where Maury is talking to his young friend here, Mitch, and he says to him, Mitch... Everybody knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. Because if they did, they would live life different. Isn't that true? If you knew you had a month to live, would you do it different? I believe there's two things that we would significantly change on, and one is perspective. If you knew you had a month to live, you got up tomorrow morning. Monday mornings are usually a challenge. I don't know about you, but Monday mornings are a challenge. If you got up tomorrow morning and you knew you had a month to live, I wonder how many of those things that come up that are going to upset you, make you worry, how many problems you're going to deal with tomorrow, that if you knew you had a month to live, you'd go, that's really not a big deal. 
I'm not going to let it ruin my day. I'm not going to spend time worrying about it. It would change your perspective on your problems. What matters? And it would also change your motivation. When you and I realize that we are finite creatures, our time is limited. When you suddenly think, i got a month to live, then you start wondering about what are the things that matter? What are the things I really want to do? Because you and I can live a whole lifetime where we keep putting it off and thinking, one day, one day. No, you get motivated when you realize your time is finite and is getting close. You and I do not get to choose if we die. All we get to choose is how we will spend our time before we die. What memories will you make? What things will you say? That's what you get to choose. Everybody knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. Because if they did, they would live life different. When you and I embrace the reality of death, it will change how we live more fully in the present moment. And third, earlier this year I had the opportunity to go out and see the Redwoods, Muir Woods, um, just north of San Francisco. Never had been there. Wow, what a spiritual experience. An amazing and beautiful place. When I went on up there, we stopped, first of all, at a place called the Pelican Inn. We were with some friends. The Pelican Inn is a, um, a place that has about a 15th, 16th century feel of England. It was built there because that's right near the spot where Sir Francis Drake landed about 500 years ago to claim California for the Queen. And so a British person came, built this wonderful old kind of British inn that has rooms to stay in, and a British pub that serves food. There were these long lines. And then inside there's all these things that are 300, 400, 500 years old. And it was beautiful. I wandered around loving history, getting to see these things. And there was this mantle carved over the, uh, the fireplace. I don't know how many hundreds of years it was old, but it had a wonderful old saying on it. It said, fear knocked at the door. Faith answered. No one was there. And I thought, yes. It's when you and I confront our fears that we're going to grow in our faith. And as you grow in your faith, it chases the fears away. You will be surprised if you find the courage to think about your mortality. The mortality of those you love. If you think about dying, if you begin to wrestle with this mystery of eternal life, the mystery of God's grace, you will overcome the fear of dying. Remember, we've talked about faith. Faith is not ascribing to a set of doctrine or a set of beliefs. Faith is trusting in God's love for us. And if you and I begin to trust more and more in God's love for us, 
then even when we confront the mystery of dying and the mystery of eternal life, the news of the resurrection, you find you're not afraid because you are trusting in God's grace. When you find yourself not being afraid and confronting death, ah, then when death happens, you're prepared. Then, every day, you live more fully because you know time is limited. It's about learning to trust in the gift and the mystery of God's grace. Paul Villard tells a wonderful story. You know, years ago now, Paul was living out in Oregon. His family was in a rural, rural town. And their home was one of the first homes to get a phone. I'm talking about the old kind of phone where they put a box on the wall and you got the little receiver and you crank it. I mean, he was a little kid, about six years old. He remembers when they got the phone and how his mom would pick it up and say, information, please, information. And she could ask to be connected to someone else. Or if the clock stopped, I mean, you could go, information, please, information. What time is it? I mean, information, please, had everything. And Paul was very impressed. And one day his mom was next door and he was left at home alone. He went downstairs in the basement to play with his father's tools and he was playing with a hammer and he smashed his thumb. And he started wailing, screaming, it hurt so much. And he came running upstairs and finally he had stopped screaming but it hurt and he saw that phone and had an idea. He got a stool and pulled it up and information please, information why he started to scream again and he was hollering are you all right i smashed my thumb are you at home alone yes are you bleeding no can you reach the freezer yes then go get some ice put it on your thumb wrap it with a towel it'll soon feel better and so he did and it did feel better And he just knew that information, please, was the greatest thing in the world. I bet you can't get that with Siri. (laughs) So the next day he was working and he suddenly thought, I need some help with my homework. He was working with geography, picked it up, information, please. Information, where is Philadelphia? She had the answer. The next day, he's working with math. He had a problem. How much is five times six? Information, please, had the answer. He started calling every day just to be able to visit with information, please. When he got a hamster, what do hamsters eat? Information, please, knew. And then the day came. He had a pet canary that died. And as a little boy, your pet dies. He was in grief. And he called information, please. And he just started crying and saying, it's not fair. It's not fair that my bird would die. People had tried to say a lot of things to him. It had not comforted him. Information, please, simply listen. And finally she said, Paul, always remember there are other worlds to sing in. He said he was a little boy, but somehow that resonated with his soul. He'd been to church. He'd heard about a heaven. The idea that there's another world for his bird to sing in, it made him feel better. 
And so it went day after day, every day, he'd call information, please. One day he'd gotten up and he was trying to work on spelling and he called and said, how do you spell the word fix? You mean like in fix something? And just as she said that, his big sister came up behind him and scared him. He fell off the stool, holding on to the receiver, yanked it out of the box. They hit the ground, they're going, hello, hello? They knew they had killed information, please. It was just a few minutes when there was a knock at the door and they opened the door and there was a telephone repairman and he said, I was working at a house a few doors down when I got a call to say to come check on you kids. Are you all right? And Paul explained what happened and he took the receiver, wired it back into the phone and then he flipped the switch and called and said, all right, I'm at 105. The kids are fine. Yalder's sister just scared the little boy and he fell, drew the hammer. He explained it all. I'm out of here. Information, please, was always there. Well, when Paul was nine years old, his family moved from Oregon to Boston. And when he moved into Boston, they moved into a home, and there was this beautiful big phone sitting there on the counter. And Paul said, it never occurred to me to pick up that phone and call information, please. He said, I knew where she lived, and she lived in the phone back there in Oregon. Well, as the years went by, as he got older, he realized what had been going on, that there had been some wonderful woman who was willing to be so kind every day to listen to a little boy, whether he was worried or needed help with homework or he was grieving, she had always been there and he came to realize just how special she was. When he finally was in college, he had the opportunity to be flying back to Oregon and as he's flying through Oregon to make a connection there at the airport in Portland, he suddenly had a wild idea and he went and picked up a phone to call his hometown and he said, information please. This information. It was the same voice. Same voice. He really hadn't anticipated that, hadn't expected it, caught him off guard. He paused for a moment and finally he said, how do you spell fix? Now there was a pause at the other end of the phone. And finally the voice came back and said, your thumb must be feeling better by now. It is you. It is you. I can't believe it. After all these years, I just wanted to call and tell you how much I appreciate you. As, I, as I've grown up, I came to realize what you have done for me and who you are. And I just wanted to say thank you. What a blessing you were to me. Oh, no, no, she said. It was so special for me to get to be there for you. I never had any children. And when you called every day, I, I felt like I was getting to be a part of your life. It made me feel special. I know it's silly, but oh, no, it's not silly, he said. Thank you so much. I would love for us to get together. I, I got to catch a plane, but I'm going to be back in three months. What if I called and we got together to have lunch? She said, I would love that very much. When you call, ask for Sally. Sally, how strange it was for information, please, to have a name. <laughs> Sally. He flew back home. Three months later, he was flying back out. He landed in Portland, so excited. He called, information, please. Information. It was a different voice. 
He said, I'd like to speak to Sally. Are you a friend of the family? Yes, I'm an old friend of the family. Well, I hate to tell you, Sally's been sick. She's been sick for a while now. And she's been working part-time. A couple of weeks ago, she died. Paul was so taken back. She said, I'm, I'm sorry, what would you say your name was? Paul Villard. Sally left you a message. Just a second, I'm, I, I know I have it here. Yes, yes. Sally said to tell you, I still believe there are other worlds to sing in. He'll know what it means. What do you believe? It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.